Hey everybody, welcome to The Freelancer Show. Today on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi everybody. And I'm Jeremy Green. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of design of defining your success criteria. And what we mean by that is that it's kind of easy to think that, you know, oh, I'm going to recognize success when it happens. And until I've recognized it, I'm not successful. And if you go into operating a business that way, it's there, there are several things that can happen. Um, one of which is that you can really start to be successful and not even recognize it. And you can just keep putting your nose to the grind and, you know, keep working and churning and feeling like things aren't working, even though by all objective measures, they are working. Uh, and that can, you know, be a bad place to find yourself in because you're not recognizing your wins and you're not giving yourself enough credit for the success that you are making. Um, and so that can, you know, be bad for your mental health and, you know, the, your perception of what you're doing with your life and your business. And it can also kind of work the other way where if you haven't defined success criteria, it's also easy to sometimes miss when you are not being successful. And it's easy to just keep grinding and keep grinding thinking, well, things are going to get better, but you're objectively not doing well and you need to recognize that and, you know, know when you're going to change your tactics, change your strategy, uh, change your business, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And you can just kind of get lost if you don't really know what it is that you're shooting for and what you're trying to achieve. And there are I think two sides to this. Um, one is, you know, very concrete. It's KPIs, the key performance indicators for your business. You know, are you making enough money every month to cover your bills and put some money into savings and take a vacation every now and then? You know, those kind of things are pretty easy to quantify um, if you look at them. Um, it's also easy to just think, oh, you know, I, I've got to keep making money until I've got a million dollars in the bank or $2 million or, you know, whatever your kind of big pie in the sky success number is. Um, and if you do that, it's real easy to miss the fact that you are being successful and having success in taking steps towards getting there. Uh, so it can be, you know, good to define that 
sort of more in a in a more fine-grained manner so that you know you can see oh yeah i am putting enough in savings that if things stay on this trajectory by the time i get to retirement i'm going to be set and then less concretely there is just the question of you know in an abstract way what does success mean for me does it mean that i have that million dollars in the bank or does it mean that i get to wake up each morning and spend the day the way that i want to spend it uh you know does it mean that i am have enough time to spend with friends and family or does it mean i've got that yacht or whatever and without really knowing those things it can be really hard to figure out where you are in relation to success. So just kind of wanted to talk about some of those things today. Uh, this came up uh, for me uh, because a couple of weeks ago I attended a small conference and uh, this this subject came up a number of times uh, with a number of people uh, where, you know, people were saying, you know, I look at so-and-so who launched that SaaS that took off and, you know, is now, you know, bringing in, you know, seven figures of MRR every month. And I look at them and think, oh man, I'm a failure. What have I done with my life? But then the same person also said, you know, but by the same token, I look at the average standard of living in the area that I live in. And, you know, by that measure, I am doing incredibly well and have been fantastically successful. And it's hard to reconcile those two feelings. And you know, that can be really hard to reconcile if you don't really understand what it is that you want for yourself and haven't defined for yourself what it is that you're shooting for. It makes me think of, um, for those out there not familiar with this, there's this concept called the hedonic treadmill. And the long and short of it is that you, so it's easy, like say you were just starting out on your own um, freelancing, <clears throat> you would look around and see people, you know, that maybe have routine business uh, and to think that they're killing it and that when you get to that point, you will just be eternally grateful and you'll be all set. But a strange thing happens, which is that when you get to that point, you immediately start looking at people who are, you know, maybe not um, having to even look for business anymore and thinking of them as successful or people who have decoupled their time for money. Um, and then once you do those things, you look to a new set of people. And the idea is basically, um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I've like read about this before. The hedonic treadmill says that you kind of acclimate to your successes much more quickly than like failure situations. So it's like a uh, picture, you know, if you've ever gotten a raise or you've bumped your hourly rate or something at first, you're flush with that success. But after like a week, that's just your life. You don't wake up <laughs> thinking how happy you are about it any, uh, every morning anymore. And so it becomes very easy to be in this um, never ending state of, feeling like maybe you haven't made it. I think if I remember where I read this correctly, there was like a really interesting part of the article where they talked about people who are multimillionaires that were living in somewhere like it was, I think, um, like hedge fund traders or some kind of Wall Street people. And it was profiling these people that were like millionaires many times over, but they all felt broke. And the reason being was that they were all hanging out in their peer group. And uh, sometimes they were the poorest person on their block. And so the idea was how, um, you know, no matter where you are, it's less about any specific metric. And, and by default, it's more about looking around you and comparing yourself to others and getting used to your successes while still um, looking at this gap between what you could be doing. And so I think 
that natural like human cognitive bias makes it doubly important to pick anchor points so that you can, I don't want to say reward yourself, but so that you can kind of have a sanity check and say, you know, even though my goals have changed um, over the last three years, I'm, you know, I've done pretty well compared to what I wanted to do three years ago. So I think it's essentially important to do this because without it, it's easy to always just be looking at whoever has, you know, more of whatever than you and thinking only of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think the hedonic treadmill idea is sort of exactly what came up several times at this conference. Um, you know, your, your style of living will sort of, uh, inflate to match your income. And if you're not diligent about it, uh, it can be easy to let, you know, all that extra income that you earn kind of just flitter out the door, uh, because your style of living is increasing. Um, and if you don't, you know, have concrete goals about what you want to save and invest and, you know, build a nest egg, it's easy for that to not happen. Um, and, and conversely, you know, if you don't really have those goals on what you're trying to do for your savings and your nest egg, it's also easy to get stuck in a, a mode of, oh, I, I must save every last dollar and, you know, not ever allow yourself to kind of reap the benefits that you're, that you're building for yourself. So what were, you know, with the folks you were talking with, like what were some of the success criteria that people talked about having established for themselves or planned to establish for themselves? Um, so I can talk about my own thing. I think with the most, <laughs> uh, detail, uh, <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that I've been working towards for the last several years is uh, trying to do less consulting and freelancing and do more SaaS applications. And so one of the things that I realized at this conference is that I already am doing well enough with my consulting and freelancing, and they are paying the bills well enough that I really could intentionally start doing less of that in order to have the time to put into building SASs and launching them and promoting them. And that what's held me back from doing that is not having good solid numbers that I knew I was trying to shoot for and, you know, not knowing what it, you know, what I need to be putting back each month in order to get my retirement nest egg built up to where I want it. I've sort of been in this mode of, you know, I worked as a struggling agency owner for 10 years and didn't have a single cent of savings or retirement or anything. So I've kind of been in this mode of, oh, I've got to catch up and I just need to be putting lots of money into savings and investments, uh, but have been doing that sort of mindlessly, like, you know, not with real solid goals about what I was trying to hit. It was just, oh, I, I need a bunch in the bank. Um, and I have kind of realized that, yeah, I think I'm really doing well enough with the consulting that, you know, I, if I, if I sat down and figure out the numbers, you know, I probably am doing as well or better than I need to be doing. And that could allow me to spend time doing the other things that I would like to do instead of being on that treadmill. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. 
it's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, for, so for me, um, let's see, it was at the end of 2016, I want to say. I'm just trying to firm up the timeline. I'm, ge- I'm getting to the age where all the years just run together. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did, I did something I hadn't done before, which is um, at the end of 2016, um, I was doing a lot of management consulting and I had some other ventures and things going on. And I went in and to kind of do a retrospective on the year, because I was feeling pretty burned out that particular year. I want to say that I had spent something like 150 nights in hotels um, and more if you count Airbnbs, like I was just constantly traveling. And so I kind of, um, I divided my work and I don't remember exactly what I did, but I said like, okay, let's look back. What has been high touch work? What has been work that, um, you know, maybe required collaboration, but was remote. And then what has been like asynchronous work. And, um, I looked at work that I was doing through consulting versus any kind of info products or, or other ways, like different income streams. And I looked at those splits and then I thought, I think rather than try to make it a goal to earn more per se next year, I want to change the splits. And that Mm -hmm. proved to be extremely successful, just quantifying it and then saying, like, I want to move from doing 75% of my work on site high touch to like no more than 25%. And what I was surprised by was I thought that would be a hard goal to hit, but I was able to get there within not very long, like three, four months. I wound down the consulting. I found a different kind of work. That's when I started to found um, this content marketing agency. And, uh, that was really encouraging because, um, just by sort of quantifying what I had done and then quantifying where I wanted to be, it let me make a series of decisions that I found disproportionately made me happier with my life. And without really sacrificing much in the way of income or anything, it was just kind of a shift in what sort of work I might take on. So it seems kind of similar to what you're describing, which is, hey, you know, it turns out I'm good. And so I can start to think about, you know, a different way to earn money or a different way I want to focus that might feed into a lifestyle that's more appealing to me down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very similar. Um, A way of thinking about it that uh, was discussed a time or two at this conference was, um, you know, that as you can increase your, the rates that you're, you're making from consulting, you know, you can use some of that increase to sort of buy your own time so that, you know, the raise that you're 
getting from increasing rates, you know, you can, you could certainly take that as extra income, but you can also say, okay, you know, I just increased my rates by 20%. So what that means is I can work 20% less and have the same income. Uh, and that if you know your numbers and what your success criteria are, it makes it a lot easier to do that calculation and figure out when you're in a position where you can buy your own time. You know, I think um, something just popped into my head as you were talking about that, which is I think that we're both doing something. Um, I don't know if it's subconsciously, but it's um, the, it's implied in, in what we've both been describing, which is that I think it can be very helpful to, in a sense, define enough. And when I looked at my life in 2016, I was kind of going through the revenue that I was bringing in, what we were taking home. And, and I said to myself, I don't need to earn any more money than this. Uh, I could, I suppose. And I think that the default, kind of like, you know, talking about the hedonic treadmill, if you don't set up any goals explicitly, there will be implicit goals often defined by comparing yourself to others. And so you can look at, you know, if you're earning $150,000 a year or something and someone else is earning 300000 it's easy to feel like, what am I doing wrong? Or if somebody's earning, you know, a million once you're earning 300000 whatever the case may be. But if you look at the world and you're at 150000 a year and say, this is as much as I really need. So once I hit that point, instead of just kind of mindlessly trying to earn more money, I'm going to look to cap it and, you know, whether it's buying more of your time, you know, working less, investing that time in some other pursuit, or maybe it's just, um, you know, establishing a lifestyle you like, taking more vacation, traveling more, whatever it is. That definition of enough can really help you um, put goals into perspective and not sweat it. Because if you're saying, you know, I think 150K a year is all I'll ever need, so I have different goals than that, then you're not going to be having any inclination to compare yourself to somebody making a million dollars a year, whether you could do that or not, it's not something you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing where enough is, is a huge part of it. And I think in general, that's been a pain point for me in my twenties and early thirties. Like I climbed the corporate ladder. I was always, you know, trying to earn more money because there was always more you could do. So it leads to this, like, you know, I remember sort of idly in the mid 20 teens or whatever you call this decade wondering like <laughs> have I kind of run past some conceptual finish line and not been aware of it like it seems like my life is pretty good you know at, at what point <laughs> do I feel good about what I've been doing and instead of just kind of without thought always trying to do more and I think that was sort of a turning point for me to start looking at this combination of like professional goals financial savings type goals and then lifestyle goals and building out a plan that sort of unified all of those things yeah. Uh, and, you know, the kind of the, I guess, culture, for lack of a better word, you know, is really sort of aimed at, you know, there's no such thing as enough. And you always have to be working and always trying to top what you did yesterday. And, uh, you know, we we don't have good or great models for recognizing success and <laughs> kind of uh, accepting it when it happens to us. You know, there's sort of this idea that you always have to be hustling and always struggling and you know if if it doesn't feel like hard work then it's you know somehow less yeah that's the truth and i think it's probably i wonder um about the interplay of being a wage employee versus a freelancer or an entrepreneur um 
there are more guardrails, I think, for employees. Like, so number one, if you're an employee, there's probably more incentive, you know, at least to get like the cost of living adjustments to do as well as you can within the context. And the way that employment is set up is that kind of, you know, unless you pass on a promotion that would be too much for you, it always means kind of earning more money year over year. So it's easy to kind of, you know, just stick with that mentality. But there's also like other guardrails to an extent your employer is going to prevent you from, you know, ridiculous overwork and you can't kind of grow in the same leaps and bounds as you can with your own business. So I think once those constraints are removed from you, it's a lot easier, you know, for those of us in the freelance world or as business owners to sort of go a little more over the top. Yep. Yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, I certainly had a, a lot of years where, you know, despite even doing objectively pretty well, I always had that kind of nagging voice in the back of my head that was, oh, you shouldn't take the evening off and watch a movie or play video games, you know, you could be doing work right now. Um, and that's, <laughs> you know, that, that's just not healthy. Uh, and I know that voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to find ways to, to get that voice under control and uh, being able to take an objective look and say, no, I'm, I'm doing really well. I don't need to work tonight. I can take the night off. I can, you know, enjoy the life that I've been building for myself and my family. Um, you know, that really helps uh, to be able to kind of point at objective criteria that you had predetermined and say, no, look, I, I made it. It's working. So for me, when when I went through this exercise, and I might be overdue to do it again, actually, but like I've done this um, in the detail I did only that once, but you know, periodically I check in often at year end and, and think through I guess not so much annual goals, but like things to strive for. And for me, it kind of takes on this formula of what do I want overall to be true of my life, meaning kind of from an enjoyment perspective. So for me, um, my wife and I are digital nomads. Like, so some years ago I said, I want to do less commuter travel and I want to just kind of be free um, to work from wherever I want to work. And that's an example, I guess, of a lifestyle goal. Um, the freedom I've thought of uh, a long time ago that it was hard for me often to like have a boss in the traditional sense, even though I had some good bosses early in my career, I wanted more autonomy. So I kind of start with goals like that. And then it's like I work backwards to like, well, okay, if I want to go off on my own, you know, how many moonlighting clients do I need to line up? Or like, you know, if I want to be location independent, then obviously I need to line up a certain percentage of income as work that doesn't require onsites. And so I would kind of work my way backward from there and then set goals accordingly. With the folks you were talking to at the conference, was there a similar sense or was there maybe like a different framework for, you know, how do you define these goals and these success criteria? I think for the most part, it was pretty similar. I mean, it, you know, it mostly revolved around figuring out how to structure your life so that your day to day and week to week is enjoyable and what you want it to be and not something that's dictated to you by your, you know, by your work life. And it's sort of, you know, taking a, a, a intentional approach that says that structuring of the day to day and the week to week is more important than this amorphous, you know, get rich goal or whatever it is. Uh, and that, you know, once you've sort of figured that out, you, you can work backwards and, you know, figure out, okay, well, 
how much money do I actually need to make? And, you know, it, it was something that I realized and that I think an, a couple of other people did is that once you really start looking at those numbers, uh, at least for me, I sort of realized that my bar for success was lower than I thought it was and that, you know, I had actually passed it and that it didn't need to feel the the voice in the back of my head saying, oh, no, you, you should be working now because you could be doing something productive. You know, when I look at the numbers, I can say, oh, well, no, I it's OK to take some time off, you know, uh, because I've reached the numbers that allow me to structure my day to day and week to week the way that I want to. And, you know, of course, there are, you, you know, I think it's probably worth saying that, you know, there's sort of a big asterisk on all of this that is, at least for me, you know, within reason. Uh, you know, if sure, if somebody dropped a hundred million dollars in my lap tomorrow, sure. My day to day and week to week would probably look different than it does right now. (laughs) But that being said, you know, I do enjoy and appreciate the, the lifestyle that I've been able to build for myself. And, you know, there are aspects of it that would change, but I don't think that it would just change dramatically and, you know, in in real crazy ways because uh you know the party on on a yacht kind of isn't you know a thing that appeals to me and isn't something that i really am trying to shoot for um and so you know just knowing sort of what it is that i'm shooting for helps keep all of that stuff in perspective for people that have never really done this like say you you know you've spent some time freelancing and usually it's just kind of a matter of hustling and grinding um what you know do you have any recommendations and i'll try to think of some that i might have but like what are some success criteria that people might define i guess depending on um, the nature of their business and their preferences uh like or you know maybe if if you're just starting out freelancing like um I think it's probably worth like if if I were out there listening, I'd be wondering like, okay, well, what are some examples of criteria that I might define for myself? And then like, how often do you redefine it? So if I say, uh, right as I'm about to start freelancing, well, you know, I'd like to have clients 75% of the time or something. Um, Once you hit that success, like what's a good framework for uh, redefining it as you go, if you need to, Um, did that come up at all? Or do you have any thoughts there? I mean, that's kind of a tough one because it's all going to be very personal and it's all, you know, about what you really actually want for yourself versus what you say that you want for yourself, I guess. Uh, And it's kind of easy for those things to not always be in alignment. Hmm. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the view community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the view community. And because they're so closely tied to Vue and they talk to people about Vue all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the Vue community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js, 
and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. You know, one thing that strikes me is like maybe you create kind of a Maslow's hierarchy of business. So if you're just going <laughs> off on your own, what you know, if you're having trouble getting clients, maybe it's just that, you know, a year in, I have enough steady business in the pipeline to know that I can keep doing this. And then once you've settled there, like what's the next kind of reach goal? You know, maybe by this time next year, I get to the point where I'm actually turning down 25% of the business that comes my way or something. So I think, I think one thing might be to look at where you are on that spectrum of need to kind of self-actualization or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And think about like what it would take to get you to the next rung and then to maybe, you know, decompose that goal or that success criteria into actions. Like that's a framework I can think of. Because like you said, it's like super hard to speak to everybody who's listening out there what their idea of success should be like. But maybe it's climbing that Maslow's hierarchy one rung at a time. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to think about it because, you know, kind of at the lowest, most basic level, you have to make sure that you're covering your costs you know, that you can actually pay all of your bills and eat and keep a roof over your head, you know, and then I guess one rung up from that is you are making enough that you can do all of those things plus start saving and investing and, you know, building a nest egg. Um, and then maybe, you know, the next step up is, can you take the kind of vacations that you want to take? Uh, can you take the amount of time off that you want to take? Um, yeah. And then, you know, it, it starts to get, uh, I guess, less concrete or less less numbers based, maybe, as you sort of work your way up that pyramid. Yeah. And I think, too, it's worth bearing in mind, like, if you're listening out there and you're thinking, um, well, I thought we were talking about success criteria and it sounds like that first rung is just barely getting by. Uh, as a freelancer, you're a business owner. And so, like, you should stop and and take notice, I guess, of the fact that if you've been at it for a year or two or, or whatever the case may be, there are an awful lot of businesses that fail. So like just being in business a year or two later is a success. And so I think, you know, from there, you're looking to build uh, increasing levels of success. Um, I think, yeah, as you go on, like when I think of it, it gets hard to put numbers to things, but I, I think it's an effort worth going through if you can, because like, what I mentioned earlier about maybe wanting to get away from the commuter travel, um, not doing as many high touch type engagements, like off the cuff, it's sort of hard to put numbers on things like that. But what I did is I went back through my bookkeeping software and look at my revenue splits, like, you know, what was accounting for what percentage of revenue as kind of a first tracer bullet, I guess. And then I said, wow, you know, 80% of my revenue is um, high travel, high touch things. Like, I feel like I'd be happier if I got that number down. Let me try to get that down to 25% by the end of next year. So um, even if you're in that less tangible tier, um, one of the things I've found is if you define a qualitative goal, um, those can be really easy to put off or not pursue, <laughs> which is like, I want to travel less. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, do you succeed in that by traveling one day less next year? Um, but if you say, I want to bring my travel, or the revenue I bring in from travel from 80% down to 25%, things get a lot more tangible. And that sort of forces you to lay out a blueprint for how you're going to achieve that. Yep. And, you know, so kind of go back to what you said about that first rung being just getting by um, and that 
you know, even being there for a year or two kind of isn't of it is and of itself a success. I think you also want to make sure that you don't get stuck on that rung for too long. Uh, you know, I was, I was on that rung with my former agency for about 10 years and, you know, it was just always scraping by and, you know, always, okay, you know, we, we made payroll this month and we got it done and things are looking up and next month's going to be better. And, you know, that was the story month after month after month for years. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think the, the flip side of having success criteria is understanding what failure criteria are and what the bailout criteria are so that, you know, when it's time to pull the plug and say, okay, this thing isn't working. I should go back and get a full-time job or, I should change the nature of the business that I'm trying to run or whatever it is, but, you know, not understanding kind of where the floor is that you don't want to go below is also dangerous in getting you stuck in that treadmill type of a situation. That's a good point. And yeah, I hadn't thought of the inverse or whatever you want to call it, but like, it's almost like any initiative you do in your career is sort of an experiment. And so you can have a success criteria, but also there needs to be um, what's the flip side. Cause you don't probably just want to do the same thing indefinitely. I mean, unless you do, like if, um, <laughs> if you're not just struggling to get by, you know, a lot of people have lifestyle businesses. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think of like, you know, maybe you have going into anything, you know, what is a success criteria where I need to define what the next success needs to be? And what's a failure criteria where I say like, okay, I've tried this for a year and this doesn't feel sustainable. Um, and then maybe it's just the product of one of those success criteria. Like you might get to a point in your business where you say, you know, if I keep having year after year, that's like this year, I feel pretty good about life. You know, I'm only working 30 hours a week. I take a lot of vacations, mm -hmm. um, love what I do. So, I don't need to define anything else. Success at the end of this year will be another year just like last year or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the failure criteria thing is absolutely because that that can turn perversely somebody who has a good like persistent personality and stick-to-itiveness. It can turn your life into a never-ending grind when it might not need to be. If you kind of look at this objectively and say, look, if I'm not – if within you know five years of leaving my nine-to-five job, I'm not back to earning what I was when I left it, I'm probably doing something wrong and I need to reevaluate what I think I'm going to do next. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, the, that stick-to-itiveness, I think, was certainly one of the things that kept me in that situation for as long as it, as I was. Um, and also, you know, I had a business partner in it and didn't want to let him down. And, you know, we had some employees, didn't want to let them down. Um, but the truth of it was that we just had a bad business model that was never going to work out and that you know, after shutting it down and going out on my own, you know, within, I don't I mean, I think my very first set of clients after shutting that down, you know, I was already making more as a solo operator than the whole agency was making in a month, uh, just because we had a bad model and my new model was a lot better. Hmm. Well, any, uh, closing or additional thoughts on the subject of defining success? I mean, I think the closing thoughts are just that it's, you know, it's going to be a very personal thing and it's not the 
kind of thing that you can look at what somebody else's definition of success is and say, oh, I'm going to use that one. Um, I mean, you, you might be able to if somebody, you know, is very similar to you. And but, you know, it's it's one of those things that it's worth doing the introspection and kind of coming to understand yourself enough that you can define those things. Uh, and it can be sort of uh, not immediately obvious that it is that sort of an exercise. I think for me, it's just if you haven't ever stopped and ask yourself the question, you know, what does success mean in my professional life, that it's worth starting to think about that. And I don't just mean idly, you know, sit down and, you know, ask yourself and you can start with maybe things that are easy to measure or easy to reason about, like, you know, what would be an amount of gross revenue that I would want in order to feel like next year was a success. Um, but I would also not neglect the things about your life that would make you feel good. You know, would uh, you consider it a success if you were stable enough in what you were doing that you didn't have to work weekends anymore or that you got to spend more time with your family? So if you start yep. to kind of brainstorm those things, then you can formulate them into both what you feel success should mean for you and into a plan to uh, attain that success or evaluate, you know, why didn't I get here? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, um, you know, it's, success can also be, you know, I want to be able to donate five figures next year to my favorite charity or, you know, there are all sorts of those things, all sorts of things that really come down to, you know, the lifestyle that you want to lead or not, I guess it's, you know, like donating to a charity isn't really even your lifestyle. It's more like, you know, what good do you want to do in the world and how do you want to accomplish it? Um, and you know, those, those are part of it. And, you know, maybe it's not that you're going to donate five figures. Maybe it's that you're going to be able to donate five weeks of volunteer time, uh, to that organization or, you know, anything there, there are just so many different things that could come into play and that do come into play for different people, uh, that, you know, you really have to define what those things are for you. Um, all right. Are, are we ready for picks? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Uh, what do you got for us this week? Well, I'm going to throw out the obligatory pick that I'm sure has been made before, but I'm going to say um, the four hour work week, just because of the framework that he defines in there for, I forget, the, there's a term for it that he uses, but in the book, Tim Ferriss does define kind of a framework for like, what do you want to be true about your life? And then kind of working out how to get there. It's maybe a little bit different than we're talking about, but I think it's helpful, at least in terms of thinking about what do I want to be true of my life? So um, I forget which chapter that is in there, but it's definitely in there. So I'll do that as pick number one. And then um, since I don't have anything else right off the top, I will say um, if you are interested in writing uh, blog posts about software for pay, um, feel free to apply to write for us at hit subscribe. Um, so if you're kind of out there writing technical posts on your own blog anyway, and, uh, you might want to get paid to do the same thing. Um, give us some thought. Uh, that's all I got. Cool. Uh, I'm going to pick one that's sort of on topic, uh, company of one by Paul Jarvis. Uh, it's a really good book where he talks about, you know, kind of purposefully designing the business that you want to be involved in on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, which is, I think, you know, for me, that's sort of one of my success criteria is enjoying the, 
the day to day in my business and doing things that I like and having a business that I'm proud of. Um, and you know, another part of it was coming to terms with, okay, for, for me to feel like I have a successful business, I really don't need to have hundreds of employees. You know, that's sort of a status marker that the, the culture says that you need, but for me personally, I don't really care about that. And so it's a really good book that talks about all, all of that sort of thing. Um, and then a considerably geekier pick. Uh, I've just restarted. I've recently reread uh, the Mythical Man Month, uh, which is a really good book uh, that talks about software practices and uh, communication in software projects and uh, how things get built. Um, there are parts of it that are somewhat anachronistic, or that's not the right word, but they feel somewhat dated because uh, of the technology that's being discussed. But uh, as a whole, it really stands up and it's really surprising how little has changed in the, the difficulties of running a software organization and getting multiple humans to contribute to building software. So I think that wraps it up for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. We will see you next time on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.